0: Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast. Episode 15 coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local
1: actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts
0: from L.A. to the U.K. This week is the first of a two-week series of episodes dedicated to music and film. Next week, we'll be joined by Annabelle Cohen, a professor of psychology at the University of Prince Edward Island, and adjunct professor in the School of Graduate Studies at Dalhousie University. She's an author and editor of numerous papers and books, including The Psychology of Music and Multimedia.
1: And in a few moments, we'll be joined by composer Nick Dolan. But first, we wanted to let our listeners in the Kitsap region know about two upcoming opportunities to support and get involved in local theater. Late last year, we interviewed Amy Knickerbocker of Virtual Theater 2020, an online community theater group that creates virtual performance opportunities for actors during quarantine. Tomorrow, Saturday, February 13th at 7 p.m. Pacific, Virtual Theater 2020 will be presenting a one-act festival featuring three virtual plays, including... The Bear by Anton Chekhov, Enigma by Floyd Dell, and 14 by Alice Gerstenberg. The event is free of charge, and you can tune in via their Facebook page at at V Theater 2020.
0: And for those of you dying to scratch the old acting itch, Virtual Theater 2020 will be holding auditions for their upcoming virtual production of Moliere's masterpiece theatrical comedy, Tartuffe. Auditions will be held via Zoom on Saturday, February 20th, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time, with callbacks held the afternoon of Sunday, February 21st. Again, for more information and registration links, check out their Facebook page, at V Theater 2020, and their webpage linked in the show notes.
1: And for all you filmmakers out there, submissions are now being accepted for the 2021 West Sound Film Festival. Submit your film at www.filmfreeway.com forward slash West Sound Film Festival.
0: Find the link in our show notes and visit their Facebook page at, at West Sound Film Festival for more info. And speaking of the West Sound Film Festival, make sure to check out the Heilman and Haver YouTube channel for our latest edition of In the Mix. Join us as we toast the film festival and award season and review the 2020 West Sound Film Festival with a delicious vodka cocktail from the Cannes Film Festival, the Le Grand Fizz.
1: And what goes better with a delicious cocktail than good music? We're excited to be joined by award-winning film composer and music educator Nick Dolan. Nick's experience includes work as a music supervisor, arranger,
0: songwriter and orchestrator plus he's had the privilege of working with filmmakers from all around the world with clients including paramount pictures cartoon network bravo mtv nbc e lifetime hallmark and more nick has also been a speaker and guest clinician for the portland film festival and he joins us from his home in the city of roses welcome nick welcome to the show nick thanks for having me so nick you obviously have a great love for music or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing as a living Uh, did you grow up in a musical family
2: I actually didn't nobody in my family is musical. I'm kind of the only one. Is that right? Yeah, my younger brother is is a little musical, but that's kind of more of a byproduct of me being musical. So
1: how did the, how did you get the bug then? How did that all all start? Cuz usually you see that with a lot if you're a musical family, it's kind of a natural progression. So how did you get get started with music?
2: Yeah, I I honestly don't know from, you know, a very early age. I've just always had le- this weird obsession with music it was always just kind of like if there was music i was happy and even as a very very young kid like if i heard classical music i would wave my arms in the air and pretend like i was conducting and stuff and uh so i it's just kind of always been there i don't know i can't explain it
1: interesting well You've you've pursued music. Uh, you attended Berkeley, and for, for our listeners who don't know, Berkeley is a top-tier music school in in the Boston area. Uh, in fact, my manager at work, his daughter, just started Berkeley a year ago. Oh, awesome! She's really having a great time there, and and speaks highly of the school and um, the programs there. So you graduated magna cum laude with a B.M. in film scoring, which is a pretty specific focus. Yeah, when you think about all the uh, the the possible music, you know, avenues and, and programs. Was film scoring, now you said you, you kind of always had a a thing for music, was film scoring something that was always um, there as well? Or was, was there something that led you in that direction?
2: Um, I've always loved film music. I mean, growing up, um, a lot of film composers like John Williams is like, you know, the god of film scoring. And Um, I didn't really know who he was as a kid, but I grew up watching, you know, Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, Harry Potter when I was a little bit older and always just loved John Williams music. And, And I eventually realized like, oh, it's the same guy. But it wasn't until I was, I think, a junior in high school. And by that point, I knew that I was going to Berkeley like um, I had a, a guitar teacher in high school that was a graduate of Berkeley and he kind of like trained me and got me ready and and kind of uh, mentored me into Berkeley um, So by junior year in high school I was kind of like okay well if I do go to college for music like how do I how do I make a living doing this you know and I knew that performance wasn't gonna be the thing because, from a, a business standpoint, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, I didn't know where the money would come from if I was, you know, a performer. And so I was just looking online at their their majors and I stumbled upon film scoring, and of course, a little like light bulb went off, and it just made sense. I thought, you know, I could do video games, you can do advertising, you can do TV, you can do movies, and there's, you know, clients, there's people that hire you. So from a business standpoint it made sense to me. So once I saw that, I just it just clicked and I was ready to go. So
0: so can you tell us a little bit about what the Berkeley program was like? Uh, how did you learn specifically to write for film? And obviously you mentioned some other avenues, like you said, video games, uh, things like that. And, and maybe were there any um, really influential folks that you worked with there uh, that influenced your, your career path you're on now?
2: The cool thing about Berkeley, and, and this, you know, that was... Oh, 10 years ago. And and there's film scoring as a a program in college has kind of exploded, I think, in the last 10 years. And even Berkeley's program has um, improved a lot in the last 10 years. But what was cool was you could kind of make it what you wanted. Like everyone had to take orchestration and certain composition classes. But if you were, you know, really heavy into gear and you wanted like synthy stuff and that was your thing, you could do that and you could go really heavy into that. Um And there was um Sheldon Mirowitz was a professor there or still is a professor there. And that was his thing. And he was very, very in demand. But then like for me, I, I was into that, but I was very into like more traditional composition stuff and specifically more, I wanted to be John Williams, as we all do. <laughs> and so for me, I was taking a lot of more traditional composition classes, but to get back to the film scoring program, it, it's it's different than a composition degree in that it's it's very much like nuanced. You know, you're you're trained how to help tell a story without getting in the way, you know. So everything you do is very intentional and then on top of that you know there's a lot of gear that goes into it you have to be able to basically by the time you get out of Berkeley, you should be able to make a mock-up that sounds pretty close to like like to an untrained ear they may not even know that it's not real orchestra and by now I know they they built a new recording studio um, right after I left of course and now they're they've got this huge studio where they uh record like a mini orchestra there which is pretty awesome.
1: It's interesting sometimes you'll hear demos of some of these things when you when you see the behind the scenes footage and the things that sound like a real orchestra. I think I was watching something on on Disney Plus the making of Frozen 2 and they were going through some of that and and yeah it sounds almost like a, to, to me, a real orchestra. Then of course you get to the real orchestra and you can see there's a little bit of a difference. There's some depth and things like that, but it's incredible. Some of the tools that, that are out there now, now speaking of, of process and orchestras and things like that, you see these behind the scenes pictures where you see the composer sitting with a director exchanging notes, and then there's a cut to the studio orchestra where everything just kind of magically comes together. It's gotta be a lot more complicated than that. Um, so starting with the, uh, the project kind of initiation, how do you get attached to a project? Does a director typically reach out to a composer? Do you seek out work from um, you know uh, contacts or, or things like that? How does that typically start out?
2: It, it's different for a lot of people. And I think there is kind of a natural progression. And I think best case scenario, if you are studying composition or or film scoring in college you got to start there like i i had already started writing music for you know video type things and getting paid while i was still in college and i think that that's really important and whether it's student films are are so important while you're in college because those student filmmakers are going to graduate and hopefully you know start making their own business and their own money And they will want to be there with you, you know, or you want to be there with them. So while you're in college, student films are so big. And then when you get out of college, there are, you know, years for most people and years for myself where you are just grinding and grinding and grinding and trying to meet as many people as you can. If you have, like in Portland, there's kind of a mini film industry here, it's a little bit, well, quite a bit more advertising heavy, but, um, we do have like a group of filmmakers that go and meet and have like cocktail hour and stuff. And so if you have a group like that in your town, going out and meeting people is also super important, but eventually, you know, you'll, you'll get enough work to where you don't need to be looking for work quite as much. There's always going to be times where, you know, you're looking on IMDB to figure out what's being made. You know, there are various message boards and forums where you can check things out. But for me, relationships have always been super important. So after a few years of, of grinding hard for me, I would just go back to filmmakers that I had already worked with and said, hey, what, you know, it's been a few months, a year. What are you working on now? And if they're not working on anything, then I might say, well, hey, I'm looking for work. I'm in between projects. If you know of anything, you know, spread my, my name around to your friends if you can. And then, of course, best base case scenario, your old clients just keep coming to you or, or referring you, which um, has happened to me over the last couple of years now, which has been really nice.
1: So networking, obviously, uh, is a big piece of it. So when you were in school and you were doing the student films, were these uh, student films from Berkeley students or were they because it's, a, you know, being a music school or were there other sc- adjacent schools in the Boston area that you would work with or, or other colleges? Yeah,
2: um, Berkeley itself doesn't have like a film program, but they had the Rhode Island School of Design I think is what it's called. I might be wrong and I apologize to Rhode Island if I am but um, they actually came and they had gosh it was like 20 filmmakers I feel like and they all showed us their films that they're working on and it after that it was just like a mingle and you just met with people and said hey you know your film was really cool what's your vision for music. I remember I worked with filmmakers that were in school in New York which was not far from Boston but even 10 years ago you know the internet was good enough that you could you could search around and find people all over the country and nowadays i mean there there's not really any, any excuse like i've i've worked with people in canada and you know europe and you can find people anywhere
0: so once you signed on to a project how does the process happen? How does it begin when it comes to the actual composition? That's that's what we'd really like to find out. Obviously, you need to work with the director on the theme of the film, match it up with their vision. Uh, do you typically start composing before the filming commences? Do you wait to see a version of certain scenes, meet the actors, get a vibe uh, before writing? Do you match the music to what's already happening, or like you, I really liked what you said, telling a story without getting in the way. <laughs> And it's probably one of those one of those positions in the filmmaking industry that that you know doesn't always get first billing, but is so important. And when I watch a film, I know, I, or even a television show, I like to watch, or cartoons for that matter. And we'll get to that. I think you've you've scored some cartoons, even. You know, I think about those those instrumentalists, those musicians sitting in a studio, actually playing this stuff, and we just take it for granted. So I'd I'd love to know how that process of the creation happens.
2: Yeah, you know, it it kind of differs with every project, honestly. And and when I was at Berkeley, we were kind of taught that the spotting session was like very, um, like that was just standard. And the spotting session for anyone who doesn't know is when you sit down with the director, usually, and sometimes the editor uh, and sometimes the producer, but usually definitely the director. And you just watch the movie and you take notes together and you say like, You know, okay, this is where I think music should go. And the director might say, you know, yes, let's put music there. Or no, I don't want music there. And then you talk about, um, you know, what kind of music. But it doesn't always go that way. And you mentioned animation. We can talk about that later. But for animation, I oftentimes will just have a storyboard and a script And I've done like the entire score off of just reading the script and looking at the storyboard, which, you know, the benefit of that is they're going to animate to the music or or the edits are going to be kind of going back and forth, which is okay. Um, Usually, though, the film or the project is already mostly done and, and ideally you're getting the final cut of the project, although it's almost never the final cut, even if they say it is and you'll watch it and sometimes the director has an idea of what they want and sometimes they don't and temp music uh, or music that's placed in there temporarily and then replaced with the composer it's a it's a heated topic in the the film music world some people hate it and some people don't i find that it depends on the project as with everything like if i'm working on a project that The turnaround is super fast, like two weeks, we got to get this start to finish. I may not have time to spot, write, record, and edit by the time things need to get done. And when you first start, you may have an idea of what the music should be. And maybe in some universe you're right, but for that director's universe, it's completely wrong. And if your turnaround is two weeks or super fast, um, there's just no time to get things wrong. So in those situations, I don't mind having temp music because that tells me exactly what the director is thinking, at least, maybe not exactly, but at least to some extent. And, um, And it also gives me the opportunity to say, hey, I noticed that you put this music here, but I'm wondering why, like for me, it seems inappropriate. But if you have an idea of of why you put that there, that helps me understand maybe subtext that I'm not getting, so.
0: Music itself can be uh, so powerful emotionally. Is there ever a situation where a director or producer will ask you to compose something for the benefit of the actors so that they can get the feel of a scene uh, emotionally for their performance?
2: Yeah, that that does happen sometimes, not um, super often, but and I've never done that. I've done things where like there's a dance scene and they needed, you know, specific music for that dance scene because everyone had to dance to the same way. Or an actress is singing the actual song that you are writing at, you know, and they're on screen doing that. Then obviously that song needs to be made for that scene before the scene is shot. I've never done it, but I know that there are some composers, especially like big you know Hollywood composers who they will write music and then that music will be played on the set for the the actors. Um, I don't know how common that is, but i've I've heard that that has happened.
0: so as an actor, I would think that would be extremely helpful <laughs> in some circumstances to nail those performances,
1: yeah. Yeah, and and music is just so intertwined with with the film. I just don't. I've been trying to think of another aspect of filmmaking that, if you take it away, would make such a difference in a film, and I, I can't think of anything that has more of an impact than than music. I was talking about the emotional side of it. And I think that's all brings the emotional side together, and I think that's just it. it just speaks to the importance of. Of the music and film.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it it really is all very synergistic. Like having a a fantastic editor and a fantastic composer and a fantastic director, you know, having everything fantastic is always good. But as a composer, I know when I see good editing. And when you have a good editor, it makes my job so much easier and so much better. And it makes the music better. So I think like yes com- good music is so important to telling a story but I think really when you get that you know strike gold moment in a project it's it's a lot of things that just come together so well.
1: So you've we've talked before about uh, berkeley and and uh, one professor there and and some of the influences. You've had the opportunity to work with a number of composers along the way in your career. But what have you learned from them, and how have they helped you, you know, to shape you as a film composer?
2: Yeah, I haven't worked with other composers directly quite as much, but I worked with one composer in l a. Um, and probably the best thing that I took away from that was just, the the level of professionalism it was kind of like he really made me understand where i need to set the bar for myself and and it he was really about like making clients making the directors feel like they're in the right hands like they hired the right person and and that's not just the right music but like it kind of goes to the business which i know some people you know don't like talking business but it's about relationships. And when you go into a project and you make that director feel like, you know, the director just gave you their baby. They've been working on this thing for years, potentially. And you're kind of you're one of the last people to put their hands on it. So for me, coming out of that was just really like I need to make sure that every project that I'm on, the director, the, the filmmaker, producer feels like they don't have to worry about it. I've had, obviously, lots of friends who are also composers and that's just fun. I mean, just talking to other composers who are also fantastic but are very different than you, you hear their music and you're just like, man, I would have never thought to do that. And the benefit of having them as friends is you can ask them, how did you do that? (laughs) And they'll tell you. And that's just, that's a lot of fun. I think every composer that I know personally um, has a very different style, which is really fun to listen to. And, you know, it, it's best when you try not to emulate each other. And none of us do, I think.
1: Do you take influences from some of your, We you mentioned John Williams, do you take influences from some of your uh, favorite composers and, and kind of mold that into your style?
2: Uh, yes and no. I think part of it is sometimes you don't have control over that. Like I mentioned temp, temp tracks before or temp music. Like if a, if a director is really attached to their temp music and it's really working for them, that can be a really tough place for a composer to be in because now you have to replace something that the, the director already loves. So sometimes your influence is the temp track and you know, a lot of people will listen to a to a score and be like, "Oh, they obviously ripped off so and so," and that may be true. Uh, they might have definitely ripped it off, but it may not have been the composer that made that decision. Even Hollywood composers, big name Hollywood uh, composers, their temp music will be, you know, their competitor. Someone, I mean, you know, they're probably friends with them, but. And they they may just be asked like you need to get as close as you can, and and that's just part of part of the gig. In terms of influence, that is more like for me, I I try not to. I think John Williams is really important for me, but I also look at Jerry Goldsmith, and I also look at composers who are not film composers, um, like Stravinsky. Another one who is a composer, Bernard Herrmann, but I don't try to sound like them. I try to, you know, going back to setting that bar really high for myself, I try to look at John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Bernard Herrmann, um, even Stravinsky and Aaron Copland and just say like, none of these guys would have settled for less than perfect for whatever that situation is. And so when I go into a project, it may not be perfect music. It may not even be my best music that I've done before. But I go into it thinking like the orchestration is going to be exactly what I want it to be. I'm not going to settle for anything less than that. So I think in terms of um, influence, it has more to do with that than than the sound.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned the the temp music. And I have to imagine somebody who's in a situation where... We'll take you know a movie sequel. We'll take you know Jurassic Park, right? So you have Jurassic Park, which I believe was also a John Williams composition, the original. And then we get to these new ones that um, I think Michael Giacchino, I think, did at least at least one of them. But you're almost having to try to copy that style from the original movies and, and transition. I can't imagine that's got to be an easy position to be in.
2: Yeah, and and sometimes they. Actually, I think probably more often, um, and, and those composers have the freedom to do this because they you know are at the level that they're at. But I think of the Harry Potter franchise, which I think had four different composers. Um, started with John Williams. I think Alexander Desplat did um, at least one, maybe two of them.
1: He did the last two, I believe.
2: Yeah, and then uh, there were two others that I'm blanking on, um, but... Each of those scores is slightly different, and if you go into it listening for for those differences, they're there. And each of those composers brought their own their own sound to it. But obviously, you have to have you know the Harry Potter theme. You have to have all these uh, motifs that John Williams put into there. But yeah, it, I think it's an interesting situation to be in for those composers. Coming in in
0: a sequel. Yeah, the constant challenge of the sequel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, John Williams is, uh, I mean, I, he's, he's a special, special talent. I remember being in probably fifth or sixth grade in band and playing the Jurassic Park theme and just getting chills. Even, you know, just uh, the handful of us in, in middle school band and the sound that we were able to create, you know, the power uh, and I just I'll never forget that it was such a, that was really my first uh, interaction with Jurassic Park and John Williams. I was just been impressed ever since. So you've scored theme music, you've written for animated films, you've contributed to uh, a large number of projects. Very um, a lot of variety there. What adjustments do you have to make mentally, or steps do you take when you switch between uh, genres or types of projects?
2: Yeah, that that's a good question because you know the music that i would do for say catfish on MTV is is very different than what i would do for a, a cartoon obviously i think luckily for me at least i think reality tv is is kind of its own beast and it's um it is very business like in the reality tv world when i when i do music like that i it's very formulaic in my head like I know what works for that TV show and and then and I just do it but when it goes to like the difference between suspense and horror versus animation I think for me I have the benefit that I just love all those genres like I love cartoons I love animation even as an adult I I love that sound I love watching animated movies I love suspense movies, I love action movies, I love dramas and maybe because I've always kind of had that ear as I've watched movies my whole life, I kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm compartmentalizing. Um, When I go and do an animated cartoon, I'm kind of, I'm in that box, I put that hat on and I'm thinking, you know, what would I like to hear if I was, you know, a kid watching this cartoon? But a lot of time, too, I think there's there's more in common with genres than people think, because it, it really does go back to you're there to help tell a story and not get in the way. And with animation, there's there's different types of animation. Like there's something called Mickey Mousing, which is when you're accentuating every step that the character is taking and every, everything makes a sound in the music. Every action makes a sound, and that's you know, that's exaggeration. And I grew up watching Bugs Bunny and you know old Disney cartoons, and I know what that sounds like. And I did uh, some Peeking Duckling shorts two years ago, uh, that was very like very Mickey Mousey cartoony. So I was able to do that, but like uh, a horror movie and like a romance have a lot more in common than you might think at least when it comes to storytelling because I'm just constantly thinking like what what's the subtext that isn't on screen what is this character feeling that they're not they're not actually saying or what what does the audience need to feel that that for whatever reason is not on the screen right now or What do we not want the audience to feel? We're not ready for them to feel something yet. And how can I dial that back or deceive the audience? Um, So all of those decisions are always made no matter what genre. And yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I was trying to think if there's ever been a genre that I said no to and I can't think of one, I don't know. I've never really had that problem, I guess.
1: Do you have a favorite genre? one that you prefer over the others?
2: You know, when I was younger, in my younger 20s, um, I thought that the quote-unquote drama genre was boring. I didn't get it as a younger person. And now I kind of like it when there's romance and heartache and tragedy because I feel like musically... There's so much that you can do with that. And there's it can go so deep in the subtext when you're when there are so many layers to why a character feels the way they're feeling. Yeah, I and that doesn't have to be a drama movie. It could be um, it could be a comedy. I love anything that has layers to it, though, because that allows me to really think about, you know, I want to be intentional about the music. And when there are layers in the story, in the character development and everything, that makes me think, you know, is this appropriate? Am I telling the same story at all times? Which is obviously very important.
0: One uh, genre that I'm especially curious about and one that I love is animation. And I think of a lot of the animated films uh, from today and yesteryear and how there is so much variety within one film as far as emotion, Um, as far as danger, um, excitement, uh, romance thing, you know, we obviously think of Disney movies first. You rescored a cartoon from the thirties. So did you go back and listen to period musicians? Were you just familiar with the thirties, uh, enough to take that project on? How did, how did you approach that?
2: Yeah, I actually did that. Um, I was interning with Paramount Pictures at the time, so I was still at Berkeley And that was just, it was like a side project that they asked me to do. And I, you know, like I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up watching old cartoons. For whatever reason, I, I watched 1930s MGM cartoons. Like I knew that, that style very well, but even by the time I was in college. So for me, it, it really was just like, I just knew the sound, um, you know, I say that, and I will also say I was still in college. Probably barely knew what I would have, what I was doing. I might score it completely differently now if given the opportunity. But yeah, no, that and that was a very like Mickey Mousey kind of vibe because that was what people did back then. And I kind of went into it thinking, you know, what would be appropriate to this genre and this timeline but kind of through the lens of a more modern ear.
1: Yeah, it was back in the days when everything was a rubber hose. All the arms were just super flexible. There was no joints.
0: Yeah, (laughs) a lot of clarinet. Yeah.
1: So you have um, a series of your pieces out on SoundCloud. So when we think of artists, we think, you know, painters, we think they have a portfolio. Actors will have uh, headshots and, and their own portfolio. Is what you have on SoundCloud, is that essentially... Acting as your portfolio, and along those same lines, how do you you know promote your work, and especially now with with COVID, uh, I mean things have got had to have changed with uh, with the pandemic.
2: Yeah, I think um, SoundCloud for me has always just been a place to store my my music, and then I have SoundCloud embedded in my website. I know there are people, and I I don't know if this SoundCloud I feel like has morphed a lot throughout the years and there there was a time and i don't know that this is still accurate today or not but there was a time where musicians were on soundcloud and using soundcloud as a way to get known i've never done that personally and i think for for any composer that may be listening to this and thinking who are who are my audience and i went through a, a time in my earlier in my career where I was thinking, you know, I have to have a Twitter and a Facebook and my music on SoundCloud and it's gotta be everywhere. And there's some truth to that, but eventually I realized that the people who are finding me on Twitter and and Facebook, at least for me, and this may not be true for everyone, they weren't the directors. And I wasn't really making music to be sold outside of the project. I have when there was, you know, if a project had a following and they, for whatever reason, liked the music, I did make it available. But for me, SoundCloud has always just been kind of a way for me to house the music so that it's easy for people to listen to. I, I do think it's important for composers definitely to have a website, and you should absolutely be able to hear your music on your website. I get emails from young composers and people going to college and, and people trying to figure out where to go to college um, or people graduating college and, and asking, you know, how do you find work and, you know, what's the next step? And I always kind of have the same answer. And, and my answer is always just make good music and make it easy to find. And if that means that you're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, everywhere, great. You know, if that works for you, great. But I think you also have to be really aware of how much time you're putting into things and and how much business you're getting back. For me, I made I did just fine without Facebook and Twitter. I did that starting out, but I, I found that the amount of time that I put into social media was not equating to more work for me. There were other ways that I was getting work. And so for me, I made the choice to step back from that so that I could focus on the places that did get me work. So I think that's important that you know, if you like YouTube, YouTube's a great place for your music to be. If you have the right to share, and and that's a big thing, you have to have the right to share the music sometimes. Independent composers like myself Often can negotiate the right to keep your music um, when you're working for TV, uh, assuming it's not a licensing thing, but like actually writing for a TV movie or TV show. That's a work for hire. You don't own that music anymore. I've worked on I did even I did a, a, a mobile game for Cartoon Network a while ago, years ago, and I, I can't do anything with the music. Um, I can't even have it on my website. And it's just because I, I don't own it, that, right? I was hired to make that music for Cartoon Network. It's theirs now. So, you know, you do have to be careful about that. But yeah, to answer your question, I think having a website, being just being easy to find, whatever that means for you, be easy to find and have good music.
0: Well, Nick, you're easy to find. Uh, and all of our listeners can find out more about Nick and his work on his website nickdolanmusic.com it doesn't get more simple than that nickdolanmusic.com and we'll go ahead and link that in our show notes below award season is upon us and uh, we'll be right back to talk more with Nick about some of his favorite award winning songs and soundtracks right here on Heilman and Haver stick with us
1: Welcome back to Heilman and Haver! You may not recognize the intro music that's playing, well that's because it's not our standard music, but the track "And an Empire Falls by our guest Nick Dolan. Today is February 12th, the birthday of Lorne Green, best known as Ben Cartwright of the Ponderosa Ranch in Bonanza. Actor Josh Brolin, son of James Brolin, best known for Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. No Country for Old Men and going back a few years, The Goonies. And we can't forget his turn as Cage in Deadpool 2. And Arsenio Hall, comedian, TV host, and man of many faces in the 1988 hit film Coming to America. Paul and co-star Eddie Murphy reprised their roles in a sequel set to release on March 5th of this year.
0: And in Hollywood history, on this day in 1914, the silent film The Squaw Man, the story of a chivalrous British officer who takes the blame for his cousin's embezzlement and journeys to the American West to start a new life on a cattle ranch, was released. It was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and Oscar Apfel, and is commonly accepted as the first feature-length film shot in Hollywood.
1: Well, we've just passed the unofficial start to award season, which, like everything these days, is different this year than it has been, with most award shows being pushed back. One benefit is that we'll have more time to watch and listen to the nominees before the awards are handed out. And one of my favorite categories at the Oscars is best original score. That's one of those I try to actually listen to each of them before the awards make my own little uneducated guess and always get it wrong. But from your perspective, as the expert among us, Nick, what makes a film score stand out above the rest?
2: Well, if we're talking about awards, um, I have to say I'm right there with you with trying to predict who's going to win and then always being wrong. I I don't know, at least when we're talking about awards, I'm not quite sure exactly what an award-winning score could be because there have definitely been times where I thought, for sure, so-and-so is going to win, and then they don't. And for whatever reason, whoever won that score worked best for the judges so i don't know for me personally it's always does the music make me think does the music make me feel when even when i don't want to feel you know it it demands emotion for me that that's the best score
0: we talked a little bit about uh, john williams what composer stands out to you uh today and is there a past winner of best song that you kind of hold up as the pinnacle? Uh, that the industry is capable of and please don't say my heart will go on please <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man I you know I don't know about best song or best score um off the top of my head composers today they you know there are just so many and and the thing about the awards is I actually don't watch them all that much because what you see in the award ceremony and the people who are nominated for awards is such a small percentage of all the composers that are out there and all the fantastic composers that are out there. I mean, there, there are just so many composers today, the big ones that are, you know, Hollywood composers that I love Alexander Desplat, you know, he's been around for quite a while now, but he's fantastic always. Um, Harry Gregson Williams, always good. But like I said, the the reason why I don't watch the awards all that much is because I know that there are so many incredible composers that um, nobody ever hears about.
1: One of my favorites most recently is, and, and I apologize if I get the name wrong, Ramin Djawadi. So he's done the score for Game of Thrones for Westworld and a number of other things. But oh, yeah. you're not going to hear about him at the Academy Awards because... You know he's doing television and you know and along those same lines there's i'm sure a number of composers and groups who have written scores that have been influential to the the industry but don't necessarily get recognized and one of those i think of off the top of my head is uh, daft punk with tron legacy uh it seems they got no love from the academy but yet you listen to you know soundtracks and and scores mm-hmm. and there's th- hints of of what they did in that movie all over the place kind of you know sprinkled here and there and is there any score or soundtrack in your mind that has that kind of influence that may not have gotten a lot of love from you know the academy or critics oh
2: man probably um probably a lot that i can't think of right now but you're right um and part of that too is there are collaborations. Like Daft Punk for Tron collaborated with Hans Zimmer. And, you know, at this point, Daft Punk... Well, I don't know. Hans Zimmer might actually be more famous than Daft Punk nowadays. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, there. that's the thing. You just never know. I mean, and, and that's why I don't pay attention too much to it. Just because I know what I think is good. And, you know, there have been best scores that have won that I thought wouldn't I wouldn't have even judged personally um you know no offense to those composers they're all fantastic but you know there there are times where you just don't get it for whatever reason
1: yeah again and this is a been consistent thing we've had movie critic on and we've had some other guests we've talked awards with and the awards are more I guess for, the fans than anything, you know, as far as a spectacle to watch that the most of the people in the industry to a person have the exact same opinion that you do. We don't, we don't watch them. There's, it's not a true viewpoint of, of where we are in the industry or what's better or what's, what's not.
0: So do most Hollywood composers work within specific genres or do they apply their skills to multiple styles of music? For example, would, would, the same composer be inclined to score a Western, then move to, say, a, a spy thriller, James Bond film, then a Pixar film? Or or do you find that a lot of these guys start to specialize when they hit that level?
2: Um, well, I think oftentimes the director, especially with the Hollywood composers, they probably know exactly who they're going to get for that movie, or, or at least they might have a couple composers in mind. And, like, I'm thinking of Hans Zimmer, has done so many different types of movies, and so many movies. I mean, he does a ton of movies. And what he did for Tron is very different than what he did for, let's say, uh, The Holiday. I'm trying to think of something very different. The Holiday is a romantic comedy. Very different than Tron. But uh, Hans Zimmer has a sound, but he has a process, which I think is more important. Um, Hans Zimmer is very experimental. And so I think someone would come to Hans Zimmer because, you know, what was it for Batman? I think he'd had like, gosh, I don't even know multiple drum sets, drum sets. Like, I don't know. I can't remember the exact number, maybe six drum sets all playing, which is crazy. Like nobody would do that. Or he often will hire a musician to come in and just ask them to play the weirdest sound they've ever played or their favorite sound to play on their instrument. He didn't write it for them. He just knew that this person could make something interesting and could contribute to the score in that way. I I think it's maybe less important that people get kind of pigeonholed into certain genres. I think that definitely happens. But I think more often a director is making a movie and they go to the composer that they think is going to do... I don't know the the best the right job I mean it's hard to say when you have composers that are so good you know Harry Gregson Williams could do a fine job and so could John Williams and so could Hans Zimmer they could all do the right music but there's only one real right music so I don't know if that answers your question or not.
0: You know, It's funny that the, the longer we talk and something that Greg said earlier in the show uh, kind of got me starting along this line of thinking, something that you if you removed from a film uh, would totally change the tone or the feel uh, or the emotion. It almost reminds me of cinematography in that and, and, and the way that you refer to, say, Williams or Zimmer they're just good. You know, you take a David Fincher, he can do something like uh, the movie Mank that was recently released on Netflix that we reviewed a few weeks back, uh, and also do something like Fight Club uh, or Gone Girl. Yeah, you know, I mean, complete, vastly different films, vastly different eras, things like that, but what you're saying is good is good.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that you go into it and you, ha- you have to know kind of what the composer's process is, what, they're, what they, I, I don't know, maybe it comes down more to feeling. I mean, how do you feel when you hear a John Williams score versus an Alexander Desplat score versus a Hans Zimmer score? They, They feel very different. And when you're making a movie, you know what you want to feel when you're making that movie. You know what your audience should feel. And I think you can go to these composers. And even if you're hiring an independent composer like myself, I'm no big Hollywood composer. But if you come to my website and listen to my music, You're going to know if it's right or wrong for your film, even if you don't know who I am, because music makes you feel things and movies make you feel things.
1: I spent a lot of time, you mentioned Harry Potter, which is a great example, because uh, uh, the the tone of the films changed as you went from the first all the way through Deathly Hallows Part 2. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Why were there so many different composers? And I think maybe it had to do with the, the tone, it got so much darker. And I don't know that John Williams' music, you talk about what, what do you feel when you listen to a John Williams score? It's not that dark Deathly Hallows thing, but when you listen to an Alexander Desplat score, it's it's got that darkness to it that seems to be more of a match. So I think that's, that's almost a perfect example of the feel of a certain composer to the tone of a film.
2: That's a fantastic example. Yeah, definitely.
1: You talked all about the Disney stuff a lot. And I keep thinking Alan Menken. And I think that it's so rare that you get somebody that writes the score, but also writes the songs, you know, and obviously he's had collaborators for, you know, lyricists and and all of that throughout, but it just seems rare. Most of the times you have songs by, I mean, Frozen, right? The Lopez's wrote the songs, but they didn't do the score. And it's, uh, Christoph, was it Christoph Beck?
2: Yeah, I think so. And even, um, I Actually, I know the guy that that orchestrated uh, the Frozen movies. Um, He actually lives here in Oregon, believe it or not. And, And it's kind of funny because you can have the composer and the songwriters and the orchestrator does something completely different. So there can be a lot of moving parts.
0: Can you just sit down and watch a movie without critiquing and analyzing? I was probably asking, like, you know, I'm asking anybody in the industry if they can do that, but is, can you do that? Do you have to put earplugs in?
2: (laughs) I think you mean, like, watch it without analyzing the music? I think I I can if the music is working. I think what it's not so much like that I'm critiquing um, how good the music is, it's more like, is it fitting with the movie? I think more often if I'm watching a movie, what I'm critiquing with the music is like, why did they decide to do that? Why did they do this musical choice? Like, this seems way wrong to me. Or, you know, it was overwhelming and the music was beautiful. And it's like, oh, that was perfect. Perfect music for this scene. But no, I, I probably can't watch something and, and not make some note on the music.
0: The curse of the professional. Yeah. Well, Nick, we've learned an awful lot, and we've just barely scratched the surface. Uh, So we'll definitely have to get you back on and uh, talk more about all things musical that go into these films. But we sure appreciate your time and your expertise today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Thank you again to our guest, Nick Dolan. You can find out more about Nick and his work on his website at nickdolanmusic.com. And uh, you can find him on social media as well, all linked in the show notes below. Join us next week, Friday, February 19th, when we'll welcome Professor Annabelle Cohen, a specialist in music psychology and film. And don't forget to check out Virtual Theater 2020's one-act festival tomorrow, Saturday, February 13th at 7 p.m. Pacific.
1: And remember, tell your friends that Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with that friend. We'd love to hear from you, so please join us. Join the conversation on Facebook and email us with thoughts and comments at Haver at gmail.com. And until the footlights come back up, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.